and welcome to this edition of Wait a Week Mystery. I'm your host and author, J.C. Bodden. In this week's podcast, I'll be sharing with you a chapter from my novel, Someone to Watch Over Me, copyright 2007. This particular book is the first in the Devlin O'Quinn mystery series. It tells the story of Devlin's daughter, Jenny, who has taken a job on campus as a dorm resident advisor while she works on her graduate degree. If you like what you hear and can't wait a week for the next installment, Someone to Watch Over Me, as well as the other three books in the Devlin O'Quinn series, is available in both Kindle and paperback format from Amazon. You can check out my website, jcbodden.com, that's j-c-b-o-d-d-e-n.com, for more information and the link to my Amazon page. Now, I won't make you wait any longer. Here we go with episode 101, Someone to Watch Over Me, chapter 1, Stranger in a Strange Land, Jenny's Story. I stood beside my bedroom window and watched the people on the sidewalk through the turning blades of the fan. The shower had been scalding hot, and now I needed to cool down before dressing. The air was humid and too warm, but at least it was moving. The wheezing air conditioner hanging out the window in the tiny living room managed to lower the temperature a few degrees, but the fan was a necessary assistant. I had taken this job as the resident advisor in the only all-freshman woman's dorm on campus as a favor to Dr. Moore, family friend and university president, who had expressed frustration at not being able to fill it. So far, my duties entailed unlocking doors, mediating roommate disputes, and ushering out male guests who were trying to stay past curfew, and I had learned the hard way why it was not the most popular job on campus. For me personally, the worst part had been adjusting to the near-constant chaos. The noise and activity rarely stops. A big change from growing up in a quiet house on the river with just my dad. My mother died when I was a baby, and, although it remains unsaid between us, I'm sure the irony of a motherless girl becoming dorm mother is as obvious to dad as it is to me. I sighed and pulled the brush through my hair, catching a glimpse of myself in the mirror. Green eyes, red hair, freckles, petite, athletic, more girl next door than Barbie. Personality is not the only thing Dad and I share. The other young women who live here with their tan skin, straight teeth, perfect makeup, make me feel awkward and out of place. They know exactly what to wear, what to say, when to laugh, how to flirt. Things my father couldn't possibly have taught me. Things I'm not sure I would have wanted to learn. Milling around on the sidewalk outside with their handsome, sport coat-clad frat boy dates, the spinning blades of the fan made it like watching a scene from an old-time movie. Hair detangled, I pulled it up in my customary ponytail, where it will stay until bedtime. It'll still be damp under the elastic when I take it down. Next on the agenda, my usual t-shirt and jeans. For some reason today, my eye landed on the picture on the nightstand, and I stopped in the middle of dressing to pick it up. The photo, a snapshot of me as an infant in my mother's arms, Dad sitting beside us, is my most prized possession, although I'm fairly certain Dad has no idea I have it. In it, my mother is looking at me, but Dad has eyes only for her, the adoration especially poignant in light of her death a short month later. I had found this, carefully wrapped in tissue paper and stored in a box with other items belonging to my mother, in the attic of our house. 
I'm not sure how Dad would react if he knew I had taken it. It's not so much that he wouldn't want me to have it, but that he's never fully recovered from my mother's death. He hides it well, but it left a hole that's never been filled. When I was little, I used to promise that I would marry him when I grew up. Then, as a teen, I plotted with my best friend, Chrissy Sullivan, that he would marry her recently divorced mother, making us sisters. I study the face of the woman I've never known, the woman who was my father's high school sweetheart, his wife, his universe. I was only seven months old when she was killed at the hands of a drunk driver, and despite that fact, the woman in the photo is totally familiar. Dark, expressive eyes, small round face, graceful smile. I know the living version of that face. My mother's identical twin sister, my Aunt Tilly. The only mother I've ever really known. How much more exquisite my father's pain. The literal carbon copy of the love of his life, and she's married to his best friend, Mickey Connor. Banging on the door brought me back to the present. I sighed. Wondered for the millionth time if the residents will ever realize a simple knock will do. Yeah? Jenny, help! It was Dana, wrapped in a towel and dripping on the hallway floor. What's up? I kept my eyes carefully on hers. Either the towel was too small or Dana was too big, especially up top. I was in the shower and Julie left and locked me out, I guess. Can you let me in? Dana shifted from one foot to the other, trying unsuccessfully to squeeze herself further into the towel. Okay, I'll be right there. I sensed, rather than watched, as Dana stepped in the room behind me. Wow, your place is big. I sat on the couch and to cram my feet in my shoes, painfully conscious of Dana's dripping, now on the carpet of my tiny living room. Somehow, I resisted the urge to sigh. Chaos. I'm learning to deal. It's an apartment for the resident advisor, with this room, a bedroom, a kitchenette, and a bath. Grabbing the dorm keys off the hook by the door, I followed Dana down the hall, glad that she's no longer soaking my rug. Game day preparations swirled around us as we walked down the hallway. Nearly every door stood wide open, music, more country and southern rock than pop, blaring. Residents scampered back and forth across the hall, seeking advice on outfits and accessories, Dana and I must have made quite the pair, her with the nearly naked look and me with the no-I-don't-have-a-date-to-the-game look. As I unlocked her door, Dana smiled and nodded her thanks to me, and the door swung shut. I know what she thinks, what they all think. To them, college is all about meeting new people, making friends, going out, having fun. But to me, that's not it at all. I'd never admit it, except perhaps to a fellow nerd but I love the seriousness of college life. I'm much more comfortable in a classroom or the library than a frat party. Forget all the other stuff. Give me a lab report to write, and I'm happy as a clam. I descended the wide stairway that leads to the lobby. The old Greek Revival-style building is in the shape of a U, the base of the letter facing the street where the lobby is located. With its two-story ceiling and wide staircase that splits at the center landing to rise to the third-floor hallways on either side, it's an elegant design. The third floor, where my apartment is located, is the only part of the building which has rooms on all three sides. The first and second floor's rooms are only on the legs of the U, with stairs to access them off either side of the lobby. 
The dorm's utility rooms with laundry, furnace, and boiler rooms are in the basement below the lobby. The morning scene was the same sort of pandemonium it had been for the last two home football games. Moms and dads were hugging their daughters as if they hadn't seen them in years. Little sisters were staring wide-eyed at the young men there to pick up their dates. Little brothers were oogling the dates those young men were picking up. Almost everyone was smiling, laughing, and talking too loudly. Wrapping paper from care packages brought from home was strewn all over the lobby floor. It occurs to me that the custodians will grumble Monday morning as they set out to empty the overflowing trash cans. The lobby of the old dorm always struck me as perfect for this sort of thing, with a high ceiling that keeps the room cool and light. It's huge, with plenty of sofas and chairs. A television at one end provides entertainment for students taking a break from studying or those waiting on dates. There's even a well-used ping-pong table at the opposite end of the lobby in front of the drink and snack machines. Outside, the covered porch provides space for a little romance, and couples often sit in its wooden swings or along its wide brick railing, talking, sometimes even making out. It's good that the university put the freshman women in this dorm. Having the youngest students in the oldest dorm makes for a nice symmetry. Outside, I walked toward the biology lab against the flow of fans towards the stadium. Occasionally, a band member passed, and I thought again of my mother in the marching band here before she dropped out of school to marry my father. Inside the old building, the sounds of tailgating faded, replaced by the ancient formaldehyde scent of my element. Order, logic, science. Unfortunately, I couldn't get any further. I had forgotten to bring this set of keys. Patting my pockets as though I could make them materialize, I turned to see if lights were on in any of the other labs. When I swung back around, a tall, muscular man was standing beside me. Without thinking, I set my feet and brought my fists up on either side of my face, assuming the defensive position drilled into me by my father, the cop. The man made no move, no sound in response. Another second, and I realized that it was Joe from maintenance. Oh, I, I didn't hear you. He nodded, his cobalt blue eyes never leaving my face, a shy smile teasing the corners of his mouth. Need help? He reached past my still-raised arms toward the lock. By the time I realized what he was doing, the door opened. He stood back, the shy smile still playing around his mouth. I dropped my hands and tried to gather myself. Silently, he turned to leave, his key ring jingling as he snapped it in place on his belt. Um, thanks, I called. He didn't turn or acknowledge my comment in any way. I went into my lab and slowly closed the door, twisting the deadbolt lock, pressing my hand against my chest, trying to still my thumping heart to convince myself that he was harmless. At my desk, I sat down to look over the data recorded over weeks of biochemistry experiments. Something was wrong, and the figures weren't coming out right. Every now and then, the crowd roared from the stadium, and it registered in a part of my brain that the game was going well. Then the noise outside quieted down, and I knew that it was over, but my work was not. With a mild curse, I turned off the computer and sat in the fluorescent overhead light, rubbing my forehead and waiting for my eyes to stop burning. A vision of the fire extinguisher sprayed as a crude joke all over the dorm hallway after the last home game pushed its way into my head and I realized it was time to leave. Definitely my least favorite part of the job, the babysitting. Pulling the doors of the old building shut behind me, I remembered Joe, 
startling me before unlocking the door, and with an involuntary shudder, wondered where he was and what he was doing. Joe's Story He had been a different, difficult child. His father's departure before he even came into the world made it easy for his mother to blame the man for every one of the boy's, boy's faults, and she seemingly found a new one every day. The other children in his neighborhood made fun of him from the moment they saw that his clothes were just a bit more ragged than theirs. He quickly learned to hide the tears caused by the other children, although his unfortunate tendency to blush was harder to control. The meanness of the little girls was the worst, because he was reminded so much of his mother, who worked all day and drank most of the night, rarely even noticing, let alone comforting, the boy. He grew up believing that he was unlovable, damaged in some inexplicable way. When he was old enough to be sent to school, his mother could never understand the daily fights about whether or not he would go. She had little patience, and even if she had listened, he could not possibly have explained to her the shame he felt. The other children all knew their letters, could recite their phone numbers, even color inside the lines. They knew the alphabet song and how to count, and some of them even knew how to write their names, but he could only stare and wonder. At first the other children ignored him, but as their skills grew while his did not, their ridicule progressed from rolled eyes to finger-pointing and then to bolder taunts and jeers. As his classmates' schoolyard bullying grew, so did the size of his temper tantrum every morning. Toward the end of the term, his mother began to give up fighting with him and would allow him to stay home while she went off to work. On those days, he would spend the day worshipping her as he sat in the tiny apartment and stared out the window, dreading the moment she came home. His teacher tried several times to set up parent conferences, but without success. His mother used the excuse of her job to avoid dealing with the teacher. After all, the boy's laziness had obviously come from his no-account father's side of the family. When the notice came that he would be held back, she was not surprised, not even attending the conference the teacher set up to appeal the decision. The summer was a blessed relief for the boy, even though the children in his neighborhood continued to torment him. He avoided contact with them as much as possible. It was during that summer that he began to spend time in the attic of the old apartment building where he lived. His mother had no idea what he did during the day while she was at work, assuming he was out on the street with all the other children. Had she been aware that there was an attic, she could not have dreamed that he would choose to spend his time there, and she would never have known where to find the trapdoor entrance. But the boy knew. He had discovered it one morning when he had been hiding from his mother. The entrance to the attic was through a small opening in the top of his very own closet. The first time he went up, he was scared that his mother would find him and whip him for hiding from her. But he was even more afraid that she would simply stop looking for him and that he would somehow be stuck, slowly starving to death. He listened breathlessly at the faint cracks in the ceiling below his knees and when it sounded as if she might indeed give up the search, he scrambled back down into the closet, heedless of the noise. When she opened the closet door and pulled him out, she didn't even notice the dust covering him. Scolding him absent-mindedly, she pushed him out the front door, locking it behind him. He stood for a moment, blinking back tears, then ducked down the long flights of stairs on his way to school. After that day, the attic became his refuge. The boy willed himself to tolerate the heat, reminding himself what it would be like to join the other children in the street below. 
He watched them through the dirt-covered window. He saw the games of stickball and tag. All summer long he chose to swelter there, rather than the torture of trying to fit into that world below. The worst was when he watched them playing in the gushing water of the open fire hydrant. He could hardly bear to see them as they splashed in the cool water, their wet clothes clinging to their refreshed skin. He hated them and longed to be with them at the same time, and he couldn't stop watching them. That concludes this week's chapter of Someone to Watch Over Me. Thank you for listening. To find out what happens next, please come back to Wait a Week Mystery for episode 102, or visit jcbodden.com to order the book. Either way, I hope your wait is a happy one. 